0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is Game Designer and Writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin, talk about stuff. And with brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include
1: The Smartest Scientist. Martha Dodd, John Harness, and
0: bottlenecked hominids.
1: Good day, everyone. It's your math teacher, Mr. Height, and I'm joined by my prize student, Robin. Today, we're going on a mathematical adventure with Infinity Tiles.
0: Hi, Mr. Height. Infinity Tiles? What's that?
1: Well, imagine an infinite puzzle that's not just fun, but also teaches spatial reasoning. And guess what, Robin? These tiles are made right here in the USA from recycled plastic.
0: That's pretty cool, Mr. Height. But I'm Canadian.
1: Why should I care about these tiles? Ah, Robin, that's the exciting part. Just this past March, mathematicians discovered something incredible. The hat, which is an aperiodic monotile. That one shape can cover an infinite surface without repeating patterns.
0: Whoa, that's the stuff of mathematical dreams. But
1: how do these tiles work? Great question, Robin. Infinity tiles are plastic pieces that go together like a puzzle. They connect endlessly, but here's the twist. They can also misconnect in wrong ways that lead to gaps that can't be filled.
0: That's amazing,
1: Mr. Hyde. But if I'm not a math genius, can I still enjoy them? Absolutely, Robin. No math degree needed. Infunity tiles are all about discovery. Whether you're playing solo or with friends of any age, finding the right fit is fun and engaging.
0: I'm sold, Mr. Hyde.
1: When can we give them a try? That's the spirit, Robin. You can back their Kickstarter at atlas-games.com infinityks. Thanks for
0: showing me infinity tiles, Mr. Hype. I can't wait!
1: The Rattle of Dice, The Thump, of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And here at the gaming hut, our miniatures are out on the table. And, um, oh, we're good. They're modern day miniatures, Robin. We've got a private eye we've got a a spy lady and we've got a scientist he's in his uh, little lab coat we've got very very smart looking very well educated miniatures this week. yes that's what we got we've got uh, top-notch knowledgeable miniatures at the top one might say of their profession because they're representing characters who are at the top of their profession and the question i guess has always been how do i play a character who's smarter than me and what if i just want to Ask an NPC and get a plot coupon and not think. I guess those are our our married elements here.
0: Yeah, and specifically, how does the GM remind the players of the level of their accomplishments and the breadth of their knowledge, which you will then go ahead to feed them? So I call this the you are the smartest scientist you know technique because if you look at any procedural show where the characters are experts in their field, you see them providing information and clues themselves. Mm -hmm. There may be a reason in the plot for them to go and talk to an old mentor or what have you. But when they are faced with a scientific puzzle, they don't need to find another scientist to talk to. They are the scientist. And that works quite naturally on the screen because the actor uh, has dialogue or the character on the page uh, has dialogue written for them for the author and the question is 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 how do you help the player feel smart when in fact you the gm are supplying the information that they have so first of all when the character says well who would i talk to about this you're the person i talk to you're the expert on this and then can what's the the next step in that
1: well there's a couple of possible moves i mean the simplest way and the one that often works if it's not a core bit, or even if it is, is to say, as a brilliant scientist, you recall that there's cutting-edge physics research being done that implies that this sort of blue light might be generated by time travel. And uh, by, you know, tachyons moving backward in time create blue Cherenkov radiation. And so... That is just an info dump. You provide it to the player in as nuggety a form as you possibly can. And then the player gets to say time travel and then have a lot of fun with that.
0: Right. And there's all sorts of different ways to, to vary that up. Mm -hmm. And so one way to make this work is to, come up with a different little tag most of the times you do this. So uh, you've already used, oh, well, you read this paper. Well, next, it's like, oh, well, you wrote a paper on this two years ago, or Mm -hmm. you recently heard your lesser colleagues discussing this at the cafeteria. And even though uh, you'd not thought much about this subject, it immediately occurred to you that, and then you told them this. And so give them opportunities to feel that they have the smarts that they paid for on their character sheets.
1: Yeah. And then another
0: possibility, depending on the
1: game and depending on the vibe of the game, and you might do it sometimes in some games and other times, not at all, is you might turn to the player and say, well, you're the smartest scientist, you know, what do you think is going on? And the player says, let's see, weird blue light, some kind of uh, strange humming. And they say, well, uh, I think it sounds like a wormhole. And you say, yes, tell everyone about the wormhole. And so they go on and wormhole is not that different from time machine. So it's like, sure. Yeah, now it's a wormhole. And you allow the player to sort of define the the true thing. And this, you know, maybe I am spoiled by having run a lot of games for University of Chicago alumni, but. You know, if you say show off to a UFC alum, you get a a, a proper show off answer. Maybe not everyone is like that, but I'll bet in your group you have one player who's happy to show off and assuming that you can sort of have a good vibe with them and, and give bounds and they and they let's say you know, they say, oh, blue energy, that's probably from transmutation of metals. And then maybe you say to the player, oh, but remember that would violate Planck's constant. And they're like, oh, right. It can't can't be transmutation of metals. It would have to be some other thing. And then once they get roughly into the, you know, time machine area, then they're once again, right and geniuses and you can go on and uh, do it. And if you can allow a player to co-collaborate or entirely be the smartest guy in the room, I think that works a treat and it pays huge dividends. And sometimes, yeah, there is no possible other way around it, except as a brilliant geologist, you know that that is soil from the Nile Valley and you don't know why it would be here.
0: Right. And you can also uh, name drop. So it's like, uh, well, you and Stephen Hawking worked this theory together and you considerably uh, refined it. Mm. And it sort of helps in that you can sort of supply the things that hype up the character and they don't have to be insufferable about it. Mm. And of course, although I call this the you were the smartest scientist, you know, technique, because it literally came up with a scientist character in my game at the moment when I wrote that down to make a segment <laughs> out of it years ago, that anyone with any expertise in any area is someone that you can think of ways to play this with. So sometimes there are certainly scenes in which you want to have them go and talk to an expert so it's not necessarily that the so let's say you know you're an expert in forestry and there's something weird going on in the woods you may find a whole bunch of stuff that you want to introduce that way but obviously if there's a particular weird thing that's going on in the woods and there's some other clue unrelated to your knowledge of forestry that's when you encourage them to go and talk to their colleague because the colleague you don't want them one-upping them in their knowledge of their field in fact you could ev- even say well yeah his uh, his knowledge of conifers is somewhat shaky but uh he did write this interesting paper that you you know had to correct up but then when you go and talk to him he's got some other clue and you already know who he is as part of your forestry skill but he's the one who you know has the weird seeds Sitting in, on his desk or, or what have you. So it's yeah. not about never having a scene where you go and talk to someone else and get information because those are interesting. But if it's just a dry scene of an expert uh, conveying information that they should know themselves, look for ways to... Uh, you are a brilliant scientist, this. Right. And are there even unrelated non-sciencey fields where this also applies to? Well,
1: I mean, uh, uh, the classic example is, you know, you're a trained spy. You tell me how you would break into that building. And then they come up with a reason. And unless it's ludicrously wrong, that's apparently how a trained spy would do it. That's what the CIA told you. So that's what you're going to go with. And you can then... Fudge the dice to make that a better plan than it would have been in, say, some objective reality. Or you can always say, now remember back at the farm, you all, you could always brush past the alarms because you were so good, but you're, you're going to be dragging these other four people in. So maybe spend a little time thinking about the alarm system. And then that gives them the clue to say, Oh, right. Yes, we have to do these other things. But yeah, I mean, spy stuff is is a classic you know as a as a trained uh criminologist you know another great one you know you can look around the room and get all the blood spatter or, or you know recreate the crime or whatever kind of fun stuff there's you know just you grew up in this town you know everybody you're connected to them everyone recognizes you and greets you and says hey barbara how great to see you back here are you here for the uh the creepy reunion down at the crypt and barbara will say well yes i certainly might be i've got to you know settle in and fresh up and they're like, oh, that's classic Barbara and everyone's cool with it. And so, you're leveraging a social position. And I I find leveraging social position to be something that pays a lot of dividends. You get uh, the old dilettante character in Call of Cthulhu. It's always great fun to have someone roll up and say, oh, my goodness, Mr. Arbuthnot, how wonderful to see you again here at the hotel. Is there anything that we can do for you? And even if there isn't in the moment, they might be thinking, oh, we, we need the concierge to call a cab to this other location for us. And it's taken care of. Because you're socially, you're the, you're the coolest guy you know in that case.
0: Right. And that general thing of wanting to have the players feel that their characters are important and competent and not be, the gooves that many players sometimes fall back into playing is also have other non-player characters give them the social cues that suggest their status. So if the forestry professor shows up at the forestry conference, all of a sudden he is swarmed by potential grad students who are mm-hmm. hoping that uh, he will uh, write a recommendation letter for them or wondering if he has a space for them in his program and find little ways to remind people why they're important. And again, you can move that from just a little grace note to, you know, one of those uh, students is the one who, you know, happens who have found the financial irregularities in the clear clearcutting corporation, and then we'll say, and by the way, can we, you know, have a moment later, or you can have them meet them early on, and then find out that they're, you know, have some sort of involvement, and have that character be a, a callback. They've been sawn in half. Yeah, and so the idea is that knowing a lot of things doesn't just give you information, but makes you part of a world, makes you part of a social world, and has you have contacts and, again, try to find ways moving toward different scenes where even if the character says, okay, well, you know, I'm the smartest physicist I know, but clearly I'm not a chemist, but do I know another chemist? And it's like, well, yes, you were at a big event of fetting the great scientists of your era and you sat next to this particular chemist and she would be only too happy to tell you about this strange substance if you go to talk to her. So even when you are going and doing the I talk to an expert who tells me a thing, you get a reminder of the fact that you're not just, you know, some random schlub knocking on the door hoping for an appointment, but that you'll be, you know, well received and ushered in and perhaps, you know, offered a little bit of port as you sit down and discuss uh whatever weird chemical composition is is at play here
1: and even characters that don't like you may be forced to respect you i mean the the criminologist comes in and does his dance the player the character and you know the the crusty local cop is like you know he doesn't like you because you're a fancy dan swanning in but he's like well you were right about those warehouse killings i'll give you that and so you know then he reluctantly unburdens himself of the information because he recognizes that your kung fu is more powerful than his, even though he doesn't want to. And so it doesn't always have to be fawning. It doesn't have to be one emotional note. It can be any number of responses, but the response just reiterates, you're a player character. You're the boss. You're you're cool. You're badass. As opposed to, what are this set of hobos doing in the you know city records hall again? Get them out.
0: Well, now that we've got trouble in the city records hall, I think it's time for us to check all of our huts. To make sure that they're occupied by the correct people, and the next hat in our segment can uh, might well be occupied by uh, you and or me. Calgary Rain Press invites you to a reality-shattered mask ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic. A Guide to Supernatural Powers in the Four Realms Haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every
1: spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's tale of Belle Epoque Terror. A Casket at Latil,
0: village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan.
1: Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's Visitation with Everyone's Favorite
0: aftermath children's entertainer and sarah's love wears no mask which brings carcoso to its natural contemporary home reality television also out now legions of
1: carcosa the bestiary for the yellow king from alien parasites to warped human conspirators from hungry buildings to incarnations of drought from gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs legions of carcosa presents 86
0: new foes to mystify haunt and menace your investigators fresh from the skull mashed minds of john r harness kira magrin Sam saltiel and Monica Valentinelli with Daniel Kwan.
1: Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's
0: Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative.
1: Available at Royally Superior your local game stores
0: or at the Pell Press web shop. The security clearance that you had to get and the retinal scan that you were required to undergo tell you that you've once more stepped into that most secured of huts, the Tradecraft Hut. And this time around, Ken, we're going to go both into World War II and into the Cold War, for the exciting, moment-filled, dramatic story of an American-born spy, Martha Dodd. Ken, uh, start us off with her uh, quite remarkable story.
1: Yeah, Martha Dodd. And this is, I think people know about the Dodds from Eric Larson's book about Berlin. But she's a character. I'm going to leave it at that. She's born in 1908 in Ashland, Virginia. She's the daughter of William Edward Dodd. He's a mildly radical professor of American history. Begins in uh, the South, and when he starts teaching things like the Southern Planter class had it coming, uh, he goes to the University of Chicago to teach American history. He's perhaps encouraged to go. Perhaps. Well, he's encouraged by the University of Chicago, which Super wants him, and he becomes uh, relatively famous as a historian, and wired into Chicago politics, at which point FDR appoints him as U.S. ambassador to Germany in 1933. Uh, While she is in Chicago, she has an affair with Carl Sandburg. I don't know if this is behind the back of her husband, George, or pre-husband, George. We don't have a lot of dates on these affairs necessarily, but she leaves him to go to Germany. They get divorced uh, by mail, I assume, in 1934, and off she goes to Berlin, and in Berlin, she continues her ways. Uh, She has lots of boyfriends in Nazi Berlin. Her She's caught by the sort of optimistic air that uh, the Nazi party uh, encourages amongst Berliners. You know, the notion that unemployment is being solved and inflation is coming down and all these other great things that the Nazis are doing for us. So she starts uh, sleeping with Ernst Hennstengel, who is one of Hitler's secretaries. Ernst tries to set her up with Hitler, which I'm not sure if that's a commentary on her or on Ernst. But that doesn't really work out. Uh, Hitler's not interested in people who aren't his niece at this point. She also dates... And by dates, I mean has an affair with
0: right. She rarely meets a an interesting man without immediately coming on to him. It's her mo. And with yeah, exactly. She is something
1: of a she is something of a, a single track approach, but it usually works because interesting men are super fond of blonde Americans. Anyway, Ernst Udet, the air ace of World War One, who would mo- who's now a general in the Luftwaffe. She dates a French diplomat for spice. He, of course, gets the sads and becomes all emo about it. She dates a biophysicist, Max Delbert. The head of the Gestapo, Rudolf Diels, as I mentioned, she is a bit Nazi at this point, and Thomas Wolf, while he's coming through Germany every now and again, he makes a stop off and he describes her as a butterfly orbiting him, and I think we will let the rest of his description pass for people to look up later, but anyway, all of this giddy social round is thrown into perspective for her by the night of the long knives when Hitler purges the SA, the Storm of Thailung, basically to you know solve the question of national socialism, which is the capital and it's national, and uh, it almost kills her boyfriend Rudolf Diels. He gets you know sent to be a police prefect in Saxony and not run the Gestapo. And this sort of sours her on Nazism that it could behave in such an uncouth manner, but also what sours her on Nazism—the
0: right, Gestapo guy isn't cute. What uh, what good is yeah. <laughs> What good is this?
1: What's, what's this story? But also what sours her on Nazism is she falls hard for a hot commie, the NKVD agent Boris Vinogradov, mm-hmm. who is under diplomatic cover, and uh, he dances with her at a diplomatic function, and she's like, oh, isn't he dreamy? Doesn't he smell like proletariat? and whatever else. So Vinaigrad of, you know, does not just seduce her. He's a NKVD agent. So he seduces her into working for the NKVD in 1935, she continues this affection with communism longer than, I guess, any of her other affections, almost.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's a common pattern to be into one extremism, and then uh, the important thing is that it's an extremism, so we'll just pick up right. the opposite. In theory, if
1: your dad knew, he'd be mad. Yeah. That's the important thing. Vinogradov uh, vanishes in 1937. In 36, they had appealed to Stalin to let them get married, and Stalin said, what part of spy do you not know Boris? And Boris, like I say, vanishes in 37. All best estimates, he was purged in 38 and killed. To cover her communism, she carries on an affair with Louis Ferdinand Hohenzollern, who is the former prince of Prussia, and now is just sort of a a weak-chinned playboy. But while she's doing that, she is also basically copying out all of her dad's files and all of the secret communiques that he gets as American ambassador, and, you know, just feeds them to the soviets it is possible that it, during this period she recruits her brother uh, her brother william who was named as a communist by the house un-american affairs committee in 1943 there is a back and forth as to how communist he was as opposed to just being mad about spain i will leave that for someone else to answer but if he got recruited it was probably now Then her dad's term as ambassador ends. She tries to arrange the new ambassador to be the one most favorable to the Soviets. That doesn't work out. She goes back to New York City in 37, where, despite her mad love for proletariat Boris, she marries a super rich millionaire named Alfred K. Stern Jr., and then recruits him to uh, the Soviet
0: service in 1942. Right, because Stern has many fine qualities. Uh, you mentioned the fact that he's incredibly super rich. Yeah. And so the Soviets want to use his money because one of the challenges they face, especially running operations in the States is they're broke. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have financing. And so here's basically you know a, a sugar daddy for uh, Soviet intelligence. And his other fine quality is he is uh, perfectly content to have an open marriage and allow her to uh, pursue anyone else that she happens to run into.
1: Yes, and this fine quality is certainly fine from from, her point of from view. Martha Dodd's perspective. We yes. can merely remember that Stalin is also fine from her perspective, and move on. Anyway, the thing that the Soviets wanted to do first is, as you say, fund their activities, and so he puts $130,000, which is a lot of money, that's like $1.3 now, into the Boris Moros Music Company, and Boris Moros is... Like the second in command of the NKVD in America. He's the guy who runs New York after the main guy has moved up to head the NKVD in America. And then it turns out that being a millionaire socialite does not actually expose you to a lot of America's critical defense secrets. But she does host a lot of radical chic parties. You know, Lillian Hellman comes around and is terrible. And then when Henry Wallace is running for president, they boost uh, the progressive party a great deal because Henry Wallace is, put politely, a puppet on a string pulled by Moscow. Put less politely, he's a commie stooge. But it turns out that just being the former vice president and secretary of agriculture gets you nowhere in electoral
0: politics. Right. Now, Boris Morris is another... Uh, incredible character i didn't give him his own segment, so people who want to get into the full story of that will want to check out a recent book called Hollywood Double Agent by Jonathan Gill so he was a European emigre who uh, became involved in the first the orchestral music business and then the film business. He was uh, paramount's uh, head of the music for a while and the story from his point of view is very much of the spy history as a Coen Brothers movie Mm -hmm. uh, angle because he's a sort of this weird clownish figure, and you talked about him you know, getting all this money for his music publishing, and basically, he was trying to scam money out of the Soviets to run his different entertainment companies. Yeah, he wanted them to fund a TV network. Yeah, TV network and his record company, which didn't really do anything. And they were more and more frustrated with him because they wildly overestimated his influence and what he could do. Because he was a plausible
1: and, liar having worked in
0: Hollywood. Yes, so. and so he was wildly grifting them, except they didn't have all that money. But fortunately, Stern did. And so, he was basically wound up having Stern, you know, fund all these different uh, operations and they kept waiting for the intelligence gold that he would supply and he he didn't have any.
1: Yeah. And around this time, there is a NKV document that says, she says she's a communist, but she's just another decadent bohemian. And so even the NKVD is beginning to, to twig. Moros also is twigging. And so he turns double agent in 47 or 48, maybe right about the time that Wallace begins to show signs of coming apart on the wall. Yes. Pad. And he's
0: twigging because the FBI has uh, been following him and he, he knows when to turn. Right. And
1: so when he flips, he
0: reveals Dodd. And so the FBI begins surveilling Dodd
1: in 48. She begins to notice this, and her and Stern moved to Mexico to thwart the FBI in the early 50s, circa 1952. Right. And the weird thing about
0: that is that he needed to tell them that she was a Soviet agent. Right. She was basically running around saying that. Yeah. Well, the FBI does not cover itself with glory in this
1: or any decade. But she's coming back and forth, commuting from Mexico to New York. One of the times she's in New York, she is subpoenaed to testify in the Sobel espionage cases in 1957, and the Sobel ring is the ring that included her and Moros, and so she is definitely aware that the net is closing down, and they're going to nail her on perjury, if nothing else. So instead of testify, she heads to Prague, goes to Mexico, uh, sweet-talks the Paraguayan ambassador into giving her a Paraguayan visa for Prague, which apparently works, and off she goes, and never comes back because uh, the United States... Stern being a millionaire or not, they're not willing to drop espionage charges. So she spends 63 to 70 in Cuba. She goes to Moscow. She has as permission to move to Moscow briefly, doesn't like it, goes back to Prague and uh, dies in 1990 in Prague. The sole satisfaction being that she saw the wall come down and Prague turn democratic and uh, the rest of her shoddy edifice collapse around her ears. So a happy ending if a delayed one, but certainly she did not seem to have an
0: unhappy life until of course she had to bounce to Prague. If you like to constantly have a lot of affairs with interesting and sometimes dangerous men, she achieved her objective many times over. She,
1: she certainly, you know, is a footnote in a lot of people's Wikipedia entries, if that's your goal. And, uh, You know, she did genuine espionage when she was in her dad's office when he was ambassador. That's, I think, the only time in her career as a spy that her product, per se, was any good. And we can, I suppose, have arguments one way or the other as to, you know, to what extent Berezovsky is right that the KGB actually cared more about influence than it did about operations, uh, in which case her influence work in the 40s was also probably not ineffective at uh, making uh, parlor pinks ever pinker. Right.
0: Uh, Well, you could certainly argue that unintentionally, both she and Moros succeeded in wasting a ton of the NKVD's time and money and exposed just how their lack of understanding of America, which is something that uh, continues in high Russian circles today, was part of it, that they were projecting so much onto this and thinking that they could get information out of them. And they, you know, sucked up a lot of resources and time and made them think that they had really great agents when... Uh, If they weren't there, maybe they would have spent more time finding better agents. (laughs) Finding real atomic scientists or somebody, yeah. yeah, because they're also a bunch of murder clowns. Yeah, right. They're idiots, except they're constantly killing people. So, the thing that overlaps most clearly with one of the games that we talk about is her 30s period in Germany. And she could be Mm -hmm. somebody that you meet when you go to uh, Berlin. And uh, uh, she might be... A distraction whose very colorful life confuses you. So, what's going on? Or she uh, could perhaps also be smitten with a handsome cultist who looks good in his robes.
1: Yeah, or, um, you know, she's she's dating, you know, Heinrich Muller, who is translating the Necronomicon for the Ananerba, and the reason you can't take Muller out is because he's always got the American ambassador's daughter with him, and that is a bridge too far, even for Project P, or whatever good guy group you're playing as in, uh, Trail of Cthulhu Nazi Germany.
0: Yeah, or you could bring her back uh, in her Cuban phase in the 60s for Fall of Delta Green, mm-hmm. and, uh, she could know some Ananurba stuff that is relevant to uh, Delta Green in the 60s. Or
1: she could have picked up on some other occult secret in New York during her open-headed, open armed chattering phase, and you realize that oh, these people that were at her parties are all part of the fate, and you have to find out what the thing is that they all had in common in 1944, and that thing is, oh, look at that, it's uh, Martha Dodd, and you have to sneak into Castro's Cuba to interrogate her and find out what she knew. And if
0: one of the uh, player characters is a good looking man they might have an in with her maybe an easier sneak than some right well on uh, that note i think it's time for us to uh, close up this ultra secure hut and see uh, what's waiting for us in a somewhat less secure hut and or segment The Best of Asphegel
1: is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013.
0: That's spelled
1: F-E-N-I-X.
0: Western. How do you say "slap leather varmint" in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Astvageln on drive-through. Like any smart scientist, you'll want to do as much to fund this podcast as Patreon backers like Michael QL,
0: Ian Carlson, James Candolino, Jesse Lowe, and Dreaming Johnny.
1: As you can tell from a thousand tiny signals, we are not in the regular studio. We are at Gen Con, and we are talking to someone else, because this is Canon Robin talk to someone else. The someone else, in this case, is leading exponent of Lyric Games, publisher of Knucklebone Magazine, John R. Harness. Hey! Hello, everyone. John, get us started. What did you mean when, in 2019, you coined the term Lyric Games, and do you still think
2: that the term has salience today. Aha, big question. Before we began speaking today, it occurred to me that maybe some of your listeners would have no idea what that word even meant. That's why we started with that. So I will back (laughs) way up, because I think it's hard to tell the story of Lyric Games and to discuss its ongoing relevance if you don't talk about the origins of it. So also in 2019, in late January, early February of that year, I ran something online called hashtag sad That event was, from my perspective, a sudden and unexpected success. It was something I ran that I thought would have like 10 people involved. Instead, we had around 170 people involved, and what it was was a gathering online, a game jam, where I invited people to make small micro games that were about sort of based on the genre of anime mecha stuff, things like Gundam and Patlabor. This came out of just a tweet I had made, and so using these, the possibilities of itch.io, a small indie, mostly video game uh, publishing platform, I said, hey everybody who, yeah, by everybody I mean, hey my 100 Twitter followers, we should do this thing online come make a game, make it four pages long or shorter, and make it about emotionally poignant mecha fiction role-playing game stuff. That event took off, like I said, it was lightning in a bottle. Everybody was very excited about it, and it was something that precipitated the movement of a bunch of indie designers or, or nascent designers, bunch of people in the sort of Twitter tabletop RPG space to get onto itch.io, this new platform. From that point, and that's not the only thing that got people onto that platform, but it was a big thing that got a lot of people to join there, um, that event got tons of people talking to each other to sign up for that platform, to start like, massaging their own presence on that platform. And from that, I think, uh, came a lot of the energy that went into a sort of year-long, two-year-long wave of many, many game jams happening on that same platform, many, many people sort of signing up to be very small-scale indie creators in the sort of bleeding edge of tabletop land. And through that process, we also raised a bunch of money for Trans Lifeline, a trans support organization. So it was a great thing. So anyway, I tell you the story of Sad Mech Jam because it sort of is the, like, rock that falls in the pool that creates a bunch of waves among with other rocks. I'm not trying to take sole credit for this. But a bunch of people um, started using these sort of this infrastructure to start making games and talk about it on Twitter. So... What is a Lyric game? Well, after a few months, I got tired of saying just to my friends, to you, hey, you know that new crop of kind of queer micro games that everybody's publishing on Itch right now? I said that sentence about once every two minutes, and I got really tired of it. So I thought, how can I give a name to this thing that exists, this sort of scene, a movement, a style, a genre? Ugh. And I I was reading a book of gay sex poetry. As you do. And on the back of it, it talked about uh, the tradition of contemporary lyric poetry. And I thought to myself, well, I kind of know what lyric poetry in an ancient Greek context is. What does contemporary lyric poetry mean? I did a little bit of fast and shoddy Wikipedia reading. And I thought, hey, they're talking about sort of short, personal Emotionally punchy poetry. That sounds a lot like some of, although not all of, the games that are in, in a part of this movement scene genre thing that's happening on this Twitter right now. There's term out there, just sitting around yeah, waiting for me, and it applies it. to a different art form, uh-huh. it's as though it was made for us. Uh-huh. So I uh, I just sent out a, a tweet that, again, was not meant to. I Did not think it would be as success, successful as it was. I simply said, Hey, I think that I've come up with a name for it, you know, insert that long sentence I'd been using, and I think the word should be lyric. And everybody took off. Everybody was like, Yep, that is a very good name for this thing. I won't say everybody who was sort of a part of that scene was a big fan of the word, but many people sort of immediately kind of. Well, it's took not a it good up. umbrella term if other people don't hate yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah if, if one major participant in a scene doesn't. Vigorously disagree that they should be mm-hmm. called that. Mm-hmm. It's not a real thing. Yeah.
2: So we went through we went through all of that culture making, mm-hmm. and so now, at this point today, years later, what is a lyric game? I try not to be the guy who's like announcing that punk is dead or something like that. Right. In in fact, quite the opposite. But I think one of the Struggles that we've had is that A, the scene that I think that word sort of described has at this point essentially not totally evaporated, become nothing, but has through predictable historical trends stopped being a sort of closely knit and punchy as it was. The contemporary breakdown of Twitter is a non-trivial part of that, and other sort of professionalization of some people, other people just totally leaving the scene and, and also game design or whatever. it's natural
1: with artistic movements in all the forms that they have that dandelion moment, yeah. they're all over the lawn, then they puff, yeah. and they spread, sometimes they grow back, sometimes they don't, but that's just yeah, the definitely. way the universe works.
0: So you haven't decided to be the Andre Breton of lyric gaming and excommunicate people?
1: No, and definitely not. Long. Definitely Lyrically not. Definitely definitely not. No.
2: The opposite of that. The thing that
1: I liked about the term, as almost none of those things, (laughs) is that it immediately applied. I could absolutely see that, following the distinction in ancient Greece between lyric poetry and epic poetry, that we didn't really have a term for games that were not fundamentally about story and narrative and all the things that Robin and I and all the trad guys have been doing (laughs) forever and ever, and that really emphasized what is the emotional impact of play, are not trying to be even a continuing story, Mm -hmm. just a short, This is a moment we get together, we feel a thing, we have had a game experience, we've had a play experience, but it's not like, it's not even like Vampire, which is maybe the most operatic, if I may (laughs) straddle the two genres of the old trad stuff. And I really liked that we suddenly had a a framework that we could use to to look at those kinds of games. Do you think that those kinds of games had their moment, and that uh, those games are now you know, smaller parts of everyone's portfolio? Or do you think that, as you say, those designers have just scattered to the nine winds, and now there's no way to track them because they're wily?
2: I think that that is an ongoing thing that the whole sort of remnants of that community or people who are encountering the remnants or the vestiges of that community are, are, including me, are really trying to work out right now. What is going on? I think that the story I've told you so far is in many ways very genealogical and sort of scene-oriented, and I think that if you think about it from that perspective, then kind of like a music movement, there was a time, there was a place, there were certain clubs, those clubs are closed, those people have moved on. Do, can someone make a lyric game right now? Uh, the context is different. Now, I think that if someone says, I found this, this the name of this scene... I've been really inspired by them. I want to keep doing that, and I think I'm going to call it lyric games. I think that's great. I'm not I'm not, I'm not the person sitting around saying, no, don't do that. Not the guy yelling at yeah. rancid. Mm-mm, they right. can't be the clash. No, so no, no. The,
0: there's a Lucas Moodyson film about uh, kids living in the boonies, and they're horrified to discover that raves are over, uh-huh. just as they've only just yeah. discovered them, and uh-huh. now they're dead. So for our listeners who have just discovered that this thing exists and is already dead, what are
2: examples of games. Well, hold on, that you hold think- on. I got, I got I got to one part of my answer. Now the second part and this will wrap back around to the question you're asking right now is that there's also the typological way to think about lyric games because I was describing a scene, I needed a word to talk about something that was going on in a contemporary moment. But the way that the word has shifted in use very quickly from being about the people I was hanging out with on Twitter in 2019 to being a, 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 explicitly a genre like a type of game with more particular qualities that shift i think has happened very quickly and is essentially replaced my genealogical thinking about the word so now and it's even inherent in the very first tweet i did where i sort of said i think these games should be called lyric games where i said that the games are emotionally punchy micro games i also mentioned things like that they toy with unplayability are these even really games things like that And I think that that conversation... I mean, some people who are really aware of the discourse might be rolling their eyes at the whole thing about the only thing people talk about when they talk about lyric games now is what is a lyric game? What does that weird term even mean? You know? To me, it's pretty obvious. I was there. It was a scene. But it now takes on these typological genre meanings and then... Well then that's a whole different kettle of worms because you because then that genre can be can look backwards in time and you think about older games than sort of were coming out in two thousand nineteen or the games that were inspiring the people in two thousand nineteen are those lyric games, is Teen Witch by Avery Alder, a one or two page microgame about pretending to be a teenage Wiccan girl. That, if, if someone wrote that today and put it on itch Or had put done so in 2019 Clearly that would have been sort of of the style In the type of lyric games If that came up today What would that mean? I don't know Robin are some of you Is drama system a lyric game? One could ask in terms of its concentration On sort of character interiority and things like that
0: Well so- if, if it could be the Velvet Underground To punk Sure There you go <laughs> right, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll claim uh-huh. that
1: yeah, uh-huh. yeah,
2: Robin was happy to
1: become the, <laughs> the John Kale of lyric games
2: Sure, sure So so in that sense I think that the, for a while people were calling things like what people now often call lyric games Sort of like poetry games or poem games, art games, things like that So name some games, yeah, okay, name okay, some okay, games. okay, 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 so, okay You name one game <laughs> That's right <laughs> that, I, that I put outside, of, outside of the category. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so if people want a starter, they can go. They can still find the list of all the games that were part of Sad Mech Jam. I think that's a good place to start. My favorite Lyric games from the time period include something called Dry Fire. You won't find that on the list of Sad Mech Jam games because it's the one that me and my co-host, Takuma Okada, after getting some feedback, we, what's the word? rejected it from the jam. <laughs> um, because that game asks one of the objects that you're... It's kind of LARPY. One of the things that you're supposed to provide in the room is the gun that your father shot himself with. Right? Yeah. So it's the second Lyric game you're mentioning not a Lyric game? <laughs> no, 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 because it's the... the, the, the uh, it's the, not about a sad mech. <laughs> no, it was about
1: sad mechs. You, Only he'd had a suit of power armor. He could have been alive today.
2: <laughs> so you can see there how that game kind of plays with unplayability can you play a game with the gun your father shot himself with if your father didn't shoot himself with a gun? But then again, can you play a game that tells you to have a broadsword if you don't have a broadsword? You know, It's, it's been done. Uh, yeah. It's been done, right? So it kind of plays in that area. So that's one. There's a game called, I think of this all the time when I think about Lyric Games, partly because it, once again, here I am, uh, uh, it's an outlier to the thing that the concept has <laughs> concretized into. <laughs> What do you want? You wanted me to... If you wanted the easy answer, you could have given it to your to your listeners, right? Here, what I'm telling you is it's a prickly, complicated category. And in fact, if, if you have the, the clear center of this thing, the whole thing collapses. So the... I'm forgetting the exact name, but the um, the moon trading card game is a game that I think is great, partly because it's counter to the idea that lyric games are somehow unplayable. Because it's a perfectly playable game, it has tons of rules, it's not exactly a micro game, it's a small PDF, but it's not like two pages, and the idea is that you, um, you take experiences of encounters with the moon, like you go and you see the full moon, and you take a picture of it, you write a story about it, you just... You really create a strong memory in your mind then you go meet other people who also have a sort of set of moon memories and you play a battle a Yu-Gi-Oh style battling card game with your memories of the moon and you trade them back and forth
0: so if someone other than you mm-hmm. thinks of what is the type specimen
2: what's yeah. the archetypal mm-hmm. lyric game sure what is that game I think that in many ways, the designer whose work has become sort of um, archetypal in that way is probably Jay Dragon. Jay Dragon's early works, um, esoteric, and even maybe like Sleepaway—that's an early work. Sleepaway. Those are probably lyric games.
1: But Jay has also done more epic games. Uh, Wander Home being the, the classic example of Indeed. that, because it's literally The Odyssey except <laughs> with fun animals. <laughs> <laughs> So, it's not an either-or. You can yeah. be both a mod and a rocker. You can yeah. be a Lyric and an Epic. What kind of game space is interesting you now, since it's not 2019 and Twitter is collapsing in on itself, and you... I uh, believe you mean X, can
2: X. <laughs> yeah, whatever. And you viscerally <laughs> refuse to provide game us game any event. more examples. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people are trying to find the new social media app. I will tell you that I am sort of over social media. What I personally am trying to do is to really invest in my own website, and to try and get other people to create their own sort of relatively static, permanent places on a more distributed web. We're trying to redvern to the you know first decade of the twenty-first century blog I mean, culture. I mean, there's a there's a chunk of that, but I think it's not about true culting it. I think it's about. Actually, there were some useful technologies back then. Yeah. And it would be nice to use them again. And actually, at this point, things that when... When I was younger, were outside of my grasp, like hosting a simple website, are now very simple and free <laughs> and easy to do um, on places like Neocities. Uh, .org, which is a you know references GeoCities, the old you know self hosting yep. website platform. Um, there's a bunch of weird, wacky stuff on there that's just like back in the day. And again, it's not all about back in the day, but I'm very interested in the infrastructure of the role-playing game communities. And I think that we need to take the lessons of, wow, a bunch of people made a giant unwieldy website thing and say, okay, what if we, instead of one big centralized bucket of everything, we redistributed it, made our own communities, took charge of those communities, and things like that. I think that would be great for us. And I think that I would also advocate anyone <laughs> right now to start a blog. Mm. I have started my own web ring, speaking of ancient technologies, reborn again, um, just uh, to I try and... I haven't
0: heard that name in a long yeah, time. <laughs> yeah.
2: So that while we're all going to make our own websites or, or ending up on a million different social media sites, some of the people who I have have met over the recent history we can stay in contact with each other and from one perspective more importantly so that there's still like a network of interrelationship between us so, so all that of,
1: you can have that cross-pollination yeah. and design influence
2: yeah so people can find my works about gay identity and rpg formalism and they find me and then they find adira Lattery, and i find rudy aka lynch poet or any of the various other designers that i've become friends with and collaborators with over the years.
0: So our listeners really do care about role-playing infrastructure, but Mm -hmm. what they really want to know about is your upcoming game about furniture. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, I'm very happy to talk about it. uh, Ken and I, and our friend Emily Cambius, who will be on your show before or after me, we were brainstorming it the other day very excitedly. If,
1: if that's the term we can use
2: for uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I was getting some feedback and, and, and therefore doubling down as is my want. Everyone has their own design process. John says to anger other designers. <laughs> You're, it's so true. <laughs> this is one of my oldest game design ideas. It came to me when, at sort of the height of the Powered by the Apocalypse boom, which I have no ill will towards but I wasn't super interested in making stuff of that type. Um, didn't have enough furniture. And I was reading about the work of late gay performance artist and furniture maker Scott Burton, who um, did all these interesting sort of performance pieces where he would, you know, have a, a proscenium stage, have the curtain rise, and there would just be several pieces of furniture that the audience sort of sat there bewilderedly looking at for 20 minutes, and then the curtain descended. The reason these two things came together in my mind is because I mentioned sort of Thinking formally about games a minute ago, when I think about the powered by the apocalypse games, I think of them as a series of tripwires. You know, you you fall into something, a move happens that sets you up to fall into another thing, um, and so on and so on. So I thought, okay, if you if it's a room full of tripwires or a mousetrap-like Rube Goldberg machine, what happens if the machine never activates or in fact can't activate? There's a sort of um, glitch or or. You know what if, if God's going to come create the world? What if God never shows up? <laughs> you know, so I imagined a you pick a piece of furniture. I'll be a table. You can be an armoire. You can be as specific as you want, or not. And then this is what I'm sort of still kind of imagining. i think he's right now, but imagining this moves in the style of Powered by the Apocalypse or belonging outside the belonging. But the thing that would activate them never arrives. And so what's the play experience of this like? Well, you wait, I guess. Or you simply are. You exist for a while. I keep thinking of, um, you know, big ideas like, wow, that's kind of like John Cage. Wow, what if the game is the not game? Or that sort of stuff, which I am very excited about. But I also think about taking strange game moments like that and putting them not where they might exist, like in an art gallery or something, but rather like... In the Gen Con Hall, what would it mean for a bunch of gamers to arrive and sit in silence for 20 minutes, pretending to be furniture that simply waits? I've never had that experience at a gaming table, and that's exactly the kind of gaming experiences that I try to perhaps birth the ta- into the world. Well, perhaps the table's been having that experience all along. Maybe. I don't think the table has interiority, so... Well, it didn't until now. I'm waiting to be proven wrong. Right.
1: And this is one of the fun things about your design process, as I've witnessed it, if that's the term I want to use, is that you have these sort of uh, instantiations, but they're always nested in your very deep background, you know as an arts curator and so things like you know John Cage or the notion of experimental theater are fundamental almost to how your process tumbles yeah. out and what you say is you say as you say, I imagine uh, there's all this. Event, all this type, all this, not action necessarily, but object happening in other art forms, in our art form, the best art form, Uh can we do something like this and better and towards the direction that our art form operates in?
2: Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think, I think that's one side of the coin. The other side being I'm trying... To annoy me, yes. Well, yeah. (laughs) Um, In a a way that's not meant to be like... um, searching for the platonic core of what a role-playing is game is i think that's a errant mission but rather trying to think of what you started this talk with a joke about taking things from other art forms and bringing them into this one which Mm -hmm. is a a thing that i think about a lot and i also think about what is it that rpgs do that other art forms don't do and can we buy sort of an form quasi-formal analysis, figure out what those things are and then once we've figured what they are out what they are, can we then push them harder, take them further you know if photography is the frame and the lens, those are the technology that create the thing we call photography and therefore cinema and everything else. what what are the things that RPGs have that are sort of novel or if not novel, what, what do they do in a way that's different than everything else? My hunch, is that at least one of those things is the idea of narrative control. This is a thing I've been thinking about uh, a lot recently in preparation for the dramatic interaction panel. What is drama in an RPG? How do we get drama? Drama system supposes it's about compromise and interaction between characters. Great answer. But I think it's also about Um, narratological hallucinatory framing and things like that anyway I'm getting too far into my own thought but what what I'm trying to get at is narrative control is a thing that movies don't do, novels don't do it things like that so if if this is analogous to our frame and lens if we push harder there what do we find?
0: Well, when we asked you on the show, I, I knew that you would conclude on another giant open question, mm-hmm. uh, for which we both thank you. So thanks so much <laughs> thanks, for by. It's always great. Special addendum, special addendum, special addendum. John has come to uh, tell us the names of actual lyric games.
2: <laughs> uh, all right, folks, you want to know, I got them. <laughs> Okay, there are a million of these, and I'm only naming a very few number of people who are involved in the scene, but here we go. Okay, Vidiccia Voletti wrote, for example, Fill in the Blank World. Momotos wrote Equus Hero. Etta Mendez wrote the Collectible Trading Moon game that I mentioned. Taylor Labresh wrote many great uh, lyric games, including The Treasure at the End of This Dungeon is an Escape from This Dungeon, and We Will Never Escape from This Dungeon. Kazumi Chin wrote The War and Everything. Adira Slattery, dear friend, wrote The Machine. Kai Po wrote Echo. Maria Mison wrote Words to Send to the Younger You. And many more lyric games are out there for you to find.
0: So let that be a lesson to you, interview subjects. Do your homework. <laughs> Thanks again, John. You're welcome.
1: In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy.
0: The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the
1: resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden.
0: Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... (laughs) URGH! in Delta Green, The Conspiracy.
1: An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design.
0: Featuring top secret, eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels. Grab your duffel bag of hardware and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog. Exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlath tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer
1: it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from.
0: That's Delta Green, the
1: conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing.
0: The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Ken's superiors at Time Incorporated used to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, at the behest of beloved backer Patrick Holmes, you've been asked, uh, Ken, to go way, way back into history, way into prehistory, in fact, by the following question. An ancestral human species faced a startling population bottleneck around 800,000 years ago, when the population was reduced to around 1,300 individuals. This type of species bottleneck typically weakens the species as a whole due to the decrease in genetic diversity. Does Ken's time machine have the temporal range to take him back that far? And what might have been the cause of this near extinction event? And what, Ken, was your involvement in either saving a bunch of hominids so that we didn't become extinct, which I think introduces a big paradox question, or possibly seeing what the other timeline looked like when somebody else messed with it to render us extinct.
1: Okay. First, let me address the range question by saying a time machine that can't take you to dinosaur times is like an electric car. It's fine for commutes, fine for your local shopping, but it's not a real time machine. Just putting that out there. So yes, I can go back to the middle Pleistocene, which is when this happens. The scientists who detected the bottleneck did it by modeling projected human genetic diversity back along the mitochondrial DNA path. They had 40 genetic lines from outside Africa and 10 from inside Africa. The 40 for outside Africa showed less signs of the bottleneck than the 10 from inside africa arguing that there's yet another bottleneck that they can't get to which would just be the you know homo sapiens leaves africa bottleneck i assume or the only so many breeding sets of homo sapiens left africa which is why africa by and large hosts more genetic diversity in the human species than non-africa does that said they're pretty confident that the bottleneck lasted from 930,000 years ago to 813,000 years ago. Like I say, the middle Pleistocene. And they su- suggest it was possibly caused by a big cooling event. And having looked into it a bit, this is the period of the mid Pleistocene transition. So and this is
0: pre yes, right? Yes. This
1: is Homo erectus is who is having this happen to them. And I don't want to get into all the bickering and arguing about. Is there Homo erectus? Is there a Homo antecessor? Uh, Is Homo rhodosiensis a thing? We're on the 20,000-foot level here. It's Homo erectus, and then they hit this period, and then the interesting thing is that the other side of it, roughly 800,000 years ago, we see Homo heidelbergensis or Homo antecessor, depending on who you plump for as the stem species of Homo sapiens, come out the other end. So the notion that this bottleneck also forced mutation and evolution just to survive is an interesting one. Uh, the mid Pleistocene transition is when the earth's glaciers, basically during the earlier Pleistocene ice age had ground down so much of the regolith, the gravel that they used to float around on that they couldn't expand and contract as fast. So we went from a 41,000 year glacial cycle to a hundred thousand year glacial cycle. So, one basically defined not by, you know, the axial tilt of the planet as to one defined by how far or close you are to the sun, and that's the uh, cycle that we now are dealing with in terms of glacial cycles. So... This is basically the same period as what uh, they used to have cool names for ice ages, Robin. I don't know if you remember. They were all like the Wisconsin age and the Dakota age and the Wurm glaciation and things. And then they did the research and said, we've got way more ice ages than we have cool names. So now they're all called marine isotope stage. Something and the even numbered ones are ice ages and the odd numbered ones are interglacials. So, uh, this is marine isotope stage 22 that almost completely overlaps this period of the projected bottleneck, which is also the name of an ambient record. It is also, yes. And I think a street gang in, um, uh, Charleston, uh, MIS 22. But the, uh, the good folks of the earth suddenly get hit by a really terrible. It's the worst ice age really to come along. Up to that, because we're doing this transitional period. And now suddenly the glaciers, when they come out, they stick on the rock and they get much thicker, which causes more cooling, which creates a a bigger, more terrible ice age when it does happen. So during MIS 22, the sea level drops a hundred meters. We only have sort of vague projections for what the global temp drops, but it's maybe double digits. It's certainly around six to eight degrees centigrade. If it's not double digits, it's very bad. And so. Right there, the folks who did the the math said, well, I'll bet that's what did that. And I think that you can certainly not rule that out because all of the fossil record seems to vanish during this same period of the mid Pleistocene, which is why uh, paleontologists call it the muddle in the middle, because they don't have enough fossils to tell when, you know, the, the earliest hominin human types
0: began to bop out the other side. Right. Can... Which is a, a weird irony that the point in time that they're most interested in seeing is the one where the fossil record right. vanishes. And if
1: we're down to 1,300 you know, homo erectuses, that's probably why the fossil record vanished because, you know, there's just fewer- the Chances of becoming fossilized. Yes, exactly. It, it, it stays length. constant while the population drops. So, that is basically what happened to our um, uh, multi-great uh, ancestors, the homo erectus. Is that he gets hit by this in, you know, certainly in the history of primates, the worst ice age ever. And then it, you know, wipes out all of the other Homo erectus or many of the other Homo erectus populations outside the tropics in China and Indonesia and places like that. Some of them, you know, cling on. Maybe the Homo floresiensis that we talked about is, is one of those populations. But by and large, yeah, Africa is hit hard. Europe is, you know, probably scoured clean of, of hominids at all. And uh, we are left with just this little population bouncing around in, you know, one assumes East Africa because that's where the few fossils we have found are basically all still at.
0: right, Because 1300, that's like the capacity of, of a small concert hall. That's and
1: again, very many people at all. This is not the whole population of humanity. it's the population of humanity whose descendants survived out of the ice age. So the whole population of humanity might have been, you know, 10 times that, which is still not a lot, but you know, the, but they didn't make but it, they didn't make it Their Their descendants all, you know, died out. And that's the way the world is. And as in fact, that is the way the world is. And so people are like, shouldn't we be increasing human genetic diversity? And I will point you to the time traveler handbook line that says, don't mess with human genetics on your time travel. That rule is there for a reason. We think humans are pretty uh boss now. We don't need to be building superhumans. We also don't need to be editing the human genome to fit people's weird aesthetics. Or
0: possibly adding in
1: more congenital diseases. Yeah, right. Like uh, that either. It's it's not uh super great that, you know, you would add, you know, maybe um uh to lactose intolerance, you had groundnut intolerance or or something. It's bad enough when individual people are allergic to stuff.
0: So this suggests then that your time activities were to prevent one of the uh, chrono villains from doing something to the genetic code.
1: Well, mostly my time activity is to keep humanity alive at all, Robin, because those 1,300 breeding pairs, or Lord, those 650 breeding pairs of humans were in a bad situation. And it's an interesting observation that I made when I was looking my own work up, which is what you do when you're in time travel, that uh, the brassica family, which we all know as the only good vegetables that love us, the nightshades are trying to poison us all the time, which is why our relationships are so spicy and wonderful with them. But the brassica just wants to feed us. But the youngest genus of the brassicae family is Cochlearia, which is scurvy grass. And guess what? Scurvy grass is... Um, it's First of all, Cura Scurvy. Hence the name. Uh, it's peppery and delicious. You can make salads out of it. But it also thrives in salty soil. And when you... Sea level has dropped by a 100 meters, guess what? You've got a lot of salty soil around. Guess where else it thrives? Cold, arid climates, Robin. That's why it's mostly found now in Scandinavia and Scotland and places like that. And guess what? When The Ethiopian highlands have suddenly become a cold, arid climate. Guess what flourishes there? Cochlearia, the scurvy grass. And guess what similar phylogenetic regression puts the age of scurvy grass at? A mere 710,000 years old. So it's almost as though some remarkably good-looking, not to a Homo erectus, sadly, but remarkably good-looking fellow went Johnny Appleseed style and scattered scurvy grass all over the Serengeti, the Maasai highlands, and the Ethiopian uplands. And some parts of humanity got through the cold, horrible winter without dying of scurvy and uh had lovely, delicious variations in their diet. And then you may say, but Ken, scurvy grass doesn't grow those places. And I say, I know, because guess what? They became tropical and all the scurvy grass died out there, thus doing the veil out that a proper time intervention requires.
0: And so this one, I guess, is a relatively uh, sedate planting operation. You didn't need to drink any Homo erectus under the, I guess not table rock under the rock. Yeah. So were there time enemies interfering with this at all? Or I mean, is that even a concern when, when you have
1: the opportunity to dink around with the human genome, there are time enemies, all kinds of ones, people, just pharmaceutical companies, time Nazis, the worst kind of Nazis, lots of people show up. But the great thing about Homo erectus is he's mean, he's a fighter. There is a area in Olagosile in Tanzania, where they have giant baboons, there is a, a area where 90 of them were brutally killed with stone axes by our boys, Homo erectus. And there's another site that I wasn't able to track down the specifics, but I trust the source, that there's a place where a bunch of baboons were lured into a pit by Homo erectus and they threw rocks at them in what must be the earliest decisive battle in human history because baboons, like I need to tell you, are horrible, scary predators.
0: Uh, you're a pretty confident
1: hunter if you're exactly. praying on baboons. So that's for sure. what I can do with your time Nazis is say, Hey, Homo erectus have some delicious, um uh it's not uh vodka, that'd be awful, but, you know, avocado, something delicious like that. Here's some delicious avocado. See those guys over there? They're like baboons. And then the homo erectus says, well, we have a solution for that, and bammo, no more time Nazis. And then it's important that they do it in acidic soil so they don't leave
0: fossils. That's
1: the only important part
0: right. of it. So, it's always okay if you're a homo erectus mm-hmm. to punch a time Nazi. And on that maxim, I think it's time for us to uh, declare... Uh, this yet another victorious episode of Ken and Robin uh, Talk About Stuff and look forward to the one we'll follow it a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pell Press. Asphagelm, Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always,
1: is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast well furnished
0: by joining such avant-garde backers as Alan McSager, Andrew Cowrie, Bart Mollio, Michael Manavall, and Monster Talk. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate densely
1: packed biomes with our latest design, You Are a Special Island. On X, he's
0: at Kenneth Height, And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at dice.camp. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.